Welcome to the All of Life podcast from Redemption Church Tempe, where we have conversations on faith, culture, theology, and beyond to help us live all of life, all for Jesus. Let's jump into today's episode. Welcome to the All of Life podcast, The Pursuing God, part two, joined here with Josh Butler, John Crawford. I'm Stephen. Glad you guys are here. We're jumping in. So uh, the cross is the center of the biblical story. It's at the heart of the gospel. And we're going to have a conversation about crucifixion, the atonement. And before you pause this podcast right now and you're like, ah, this sounds like a theological conversation that doesn't interest me. John, why does this matter? Why should somebody keep listening? Uh, Why would we do this? Yeah, that's a great question. I think uh, right now in society, especially over the last couple of years, there's a caricature um, and a distortion of the cross and atonement, specifically that uh, it's divine child abuse and that the father is abusing Jesus on the cross. And so um, it's an important conversation to have because like you said, at the center of the biblical story is the cross. Um, The reason why we sit here is with Without the cross, there's no resurrection, and we're not here, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and so it's an important thing, but there's a lot of different beliefs around what happened on the cross, what was really going on, yeah. and uh, around this idea of atonement, around penalty, around substitution, around God's wrath. And um, there's a lot of prominent authors, speakers, bloggers, even other uh, other podcasts that are very popular yeah. that have shifted from a historic orthodox view around the atonement to now holding that what happened was divine child abuse. And so we're here with Josh, um, who wrote The Pursuing God, and this book is really, really, really good. And I can say that because I didn't write it, so Josh doesn't have to say that, but um, in yeah. the book, he's addressing and talking through a lot of these caricatures. And so I think it's going to be a really helpful conversation. And maybe if you're not even wrestling with this, I guarantee you know people who are. Yeah, exactly. um, And so it, I think it's it's going to be a helpful podcast to equip you to really understand like what really took place on the cross. Yeah. Let's just jump in, guys. Uh, caricature one, you hit on it, John. Because uh, again, the the format of this book is there's these caricatures uh, that many of us either have heard or even were, were told or they're implicit. But then also, then there's the the other side. What is actually the Bible? What is the good news? Yeah. Well, maybe if I can jump in to yeah. just to uh, recap, you know, last, our, our part one, we looked at the big picture of the pursuing God, which is really how it's not about us going out to find God, it's God coming out to find us. And yeah. so uh, this book is divided into three sections where the first section is really laying that out in terms of the incarnation and the fullness of the biblical story. Uh, but now this whole second section is, yeah, where we get into the crucifixion and all. But to frame it up, I think we have to set it in the context of the biblical story, which is about God's mission, his pursuit to yeah. reconcile and restore all creation to uh, bring humanity yeah. back to himself. Absolutely. Amen. So in that context, embedded in that story, the character is Jesus Bearing our punishment on the cross is an act of divine child abuse versus the gospel, which says Jesus bearing our punishment on the cross is an act of divine love. Let's dialogue about that. Cool. Well, hey, so the first uh, first thought here would be, man, let's talk about Jesus and his relationship to the cross. And one of the things mm. that the divine child abuse character gets uh, wrong <laughs> is it turns Jesus into a hapless victim, right? Mm-hmm. But the reality in the cross is that Jesus is an active agent, not yes. a passive victim, right? So Jesus is 33 years, years old, like he's a grown man, he's not a kid, <laughs> right? And he goes to the cross of his own accord. Jesus says, uh, constantly saying things, he is an active agent going to the cross where he's like, um, no one takes my life from me, I lay it down of my own accord. He's constantly saying things like, the son of man must suffer and be rejected and die. Uh, He's, man, one of the ways I put it is like, dude, Jesus is a jaguar. The cross is his prey. He is going after the cross. He, uh, I love there's a a scene in the gospels where it says he set his face like flint is kind of the backdrop. Mm. He set his eyes towards Jerusalem. And from there, like an arrow streaming towards his target, Jesus is on the way to the cross, seeing it as the climax of his mission, the fulfillment of his, his destiny here, what he's, what he's, uh, about and set out to accomplish. And the disciples are constantly, it's worth recognizing, trying to distract him and turn away from it. Like, no, may it never be. You know, you yeah, can't totally. go to the cross. They're trying to keep him yeah. from yes. And that's where Jesus is like, get behind me, Satan. Yeah. Like, like those who see the cross as antithetical to his mission, hmm. Jesus actually confronts as being aligned with the enemy. And yeah. Jesus is going, no, like this is actually 
this is the target, the bullseye that I'm heading towards. Um, you may have your purposes in the cross, Roman Empire. You may have your purpose in the cross, Jewish leadership. You may have your purpose in the cross, Satan, sin, and death. Hmm. But I've got my purposes in the cross. And what my purpose is to do is to actually overcome and conquer sin, death, and hell, to actually reconcile my world from evil, to actually atone for sin and deal with this. And so, once more, Jesus is an active agent going to the cross. Yeah. Yeah, I think the, you know, I'm sure we're going to get there as well, but just with um, the Trinity and uh, how the Trinity is being wrapped into this conversation is so important because if you do, if you don't have a robust view of the Trinity, then you view God the Father as, hey, he's the one that's saying, Jesus, you're going to do this, you know, and I'm forcing <laughs> you to do this. No, and, dad, please, I don't want to. Like, yeah, you know, exactly, yeah, totally. right? Of like, no, what, what's yeah. going on here is the son was the one in union with the father and the spirit who determined this, like who said, hey, we're, this is going to happen, right? This is the purpose of God's mission. Um, like what you said at the beginning of this, let's frame this in the, in the context of the biblical story of God's mission. And this is yeah. the target. Jesus is saying, hey, the son of man, didn't come to be served, but mm. to serve and give his life as a ransom yeah. for many. Like Jesus knows and he's willing. Yeah. He's God the Father's not dragging him, yeah. you know, he's not yeah. begrudgingly going the cross, but Jesus is willing. It, it's it's a demonstration totally. of his great love for the world and his mission. Yes, totally. the, the son is one with the father. The son proceeds forth from the father. The son is the full expression of the father's identity. Jesus is, part of his divinity, what that means is the father, son, and spirit share one will. We, maybe we'll get into this more later in the podcast, but Jesus is the expression of hmm. uh, God, right? Like, like the fullness of who God is expressed taking on flesh in humanity to come mm. and atone for and deal with sin. So there's not, we'll get into this more later, but there's not a split in the Trinity where the father wants one thing, the son wants another. Mm. And, you know, uh, so we can, we can talk about that more. But I think one of the ways I put it in there is um, when it comes to Jesus and the cross, the cross is not only happening to Jesus, Jesus is happening to the cross, right? Yeah. Like he has his purposes that he's setting out to accomplish and to do at the cross. And He's a lion and the cross is his prey, right? Like he's, yeah. he's, he's going to devour death. Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a quote you had, Josh, in this talking about the Trinitarian reality of, of the cross. That I, We read this before we logged on. I thought it was, it was helpful. But you say, the Father, Son, and Spirit are equal. The Father is not coercing the Son. Go die for those rebels, whether you like it or not. The Son's not manipulating the Father. But please, Dad, just let me go save my friends. <laughs> and the Spirit's not an innocent bystander caught up in someone else's agenda. Wait, wait, wait. What I missed? What's going on here? What did you sign me up for? Like yeah. <laughs> that the cross is a trinitarian yes. uh, event here. Yeah. Um yeah. Yeah, the cross is a triune event, and this confronts uh, some analogies that get used at times for the cross, right? Because uh, sometimes I think what people are reacting against is that in certain circles, uh, I'd say including at times some of our own, you know, where Reformed Church, sometimes the way that it's been articulated, so I'm Reformed theologically, but that sometimes the way that it has been articulated at a popular level has been unhealthy and even unorthodox in the sense of, uh, I've heard people uh, in our circles at times frame the cross as almost like a break in the Trinity, like the mm. father against the son uh, yeah. wow. in, in, in terms of like the divine essence being broken. And wow. we can talk more about that uh, in a bit, but that's that's not what's happened to the cross. Um, to use one example, I remember seeing a video once, an evangelistic video that someone had made. Um, it was kind of popular in some circles, but it was this picture of uh, a father and he takes his son with him to work at a railroad and his son kind of runs off to play. And then the father realizes, oh no, like there's a train coming, I have to pull down the bridge. But he realizes, oh, his son has gotten caught or his son is kind of playing down underneath the bridge. And all these people are gonna die unless I like lower the bridge and crush my son mm -hmm. under, you know? And, and so it's kind of this tragic, oh, the father's gotta pull the lever and he, you know, uh, his son dies in order to save all, all the people on the train. And uh, just one, Quick observation is that's a horrible analogy. Like, yeah, right? totally. <laughs> like on on a number of levels. Oh, man. One is just, like we're talking about. It turns the son into a hapless victim. Yeah. It turns the son yeah. into someone who's like unaware of what's going on around him, just kind yeah. of caught by fate in the midst of you know these surrounding totally. things. It removes the sense of divine agency and purpose, and even the unity between the yeah. father mm -hmm. and the son as active agents who aren't caught 
in circumstances beyond themselves, but are actually actively engaging mm. the sin and rebellion and death of the world in order to reconcile and heal and atone mm. for it. Yeah. And man, just to even uh, talk through some of these caricatures and like the analogy of like, this is a horrible analogy. Yeah. I think why um, culturally right now, why there's a lot of momentum um, behind this divine child abuse um, view of what happened with the cross is a lot of these caricatures actually sound uh, like very convincing if you take it at surface level. But then if you really drill in, it's like, that's a terrible analogy, you know? Like e even a, another scholar, Fleming Rutledge, we were talking about, um, She she's responding to this whole divine child abuse. And she's done a lot of great works theologian on the cross, yes. For those who aren't familiar, Fleming Rutledge is, uh, I think she won Christianity Today's Book of the Year award a few years back yeah. for her book on the crucifixion. crucifixion. And, yeah. And she says the divine child abuse and, and viewing what happened on the cross that way, she said that there's so much straw in that caricature that you could put a costume on it and put it in the Wizard of Oz, right? And she's like, <laughs> there's so, she's like that, that is just, if you yeah. actually drill in, yeah. but it sounds very convincing of like, oh my gosh, you know, God the Father is this, man, he, he hates the world, he hates his son, he's gonna just pour out all of his wrath versus yeah. when you start to really drill into these analogies and these pictures, they're, they're huge distortions. And that's where I think even going back to a robust view of the Trinity, I think you start to see where some people are like, oh yeah, you know, I don't really see how the Trinity matters all that much. A lot of times it's so abstract, but this is where you really start to see understanding the Trinity and having a robust view yeah. um, really has implications for the way that we view huge things within the Christian faith. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'd say as well, you know, like the cross, ultimately, if we're not seeing it ultimately as an expression of divine love, then we're not seeing it the same way Jesus sees it, right? Or the yeah. New Testament sees it. Because Jesus talks about, uh, you think one of the most classic verses, John three sixteen, uh, God so loved the world, mm -hmm. Jesus says that he gave his only son. It's yeah. out of divine love that, yes. that, that goes to the cross. And Paul uh, says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He sees the cross yeah. as an expression of God's love. Uh, John says, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Throughout the New Testament, the dominant uh, image that we should have is the cross is an expression of divine love, the Father and the Son's love and the power mm. of the Spirit for yeah. humanity and creation. And I think the, the other thing that the cross uh, does is it's, it shows, it's the ultimate display of what love will do. Like the, mm. the lengths that love will go to. And, and Jesus even says then in John 15, kind of this is the golden standard of love, right? He says, no greater love than this, to lay down your life for your friends, right? This sacrificial love, it, yeah. it sh it's the ultimate display of what love will do. Yeah. And I think even for, for me as a dad with my kids, I would lay down my life for my kids, right? Because, because how much I love them. And yeah. you start to see like, the ultimate display of love is, is sacrificial, sacrificial in nature. And, and I think that when you view the cross um, through this lens of the ultimate display of love, you really start to see the beauty of what God has done for us. Mm. That's really good. That's really good. When, we, when, when I hear the word atonement, when I hear the cross, the, the, the framework that I was given um, as I kind of grew in my faith was the idea of like penal substitutionary atonement. Mm. And I think... Uh, you know, and in many ways, that's what a lot of people are taking fire shots at and trying to blow that up, right? Sure. And so yeah. I think we got to define some of our terms here. And so, Josh, can I kick it over to you? What is the penalty? Yeah. Let me just start Great. with that Great. part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so first I'll say when we talk about atonement, there are a number of different models or, you know, uh, biblical ones for understanding what's going on. Yeah. Uh, there's penal substitution or for short PSA, penal substitutionary atonement. Christus Victor, yep. Ransom, some have counted, you know, like up to nine or more models, you know. And so, um, and I'd say kind of like a diamond with multiple angles, like they're all uh, reflecting different parts of the cross. Mm, but one good. of the ones that's more controversial, uh, but I think is actually central is the penal substitution. And we'll get into why here in a minute. Um, but... I think one of the first things we have to do is define the terms. What do yeah. we mean by penal? Like, what's the penalty? And what do we mean by substitution? What's going on with substitution? Because a lot of the characters, I think, result from a distortion or a misunderstanding hmm. of these two terms, right? Yeah. So we start with what is the penalty? Uh, the, the caricature is like the penalty is like God's punching his son in the 
face on the cross or something like that, right? You know, um, where, where, where that is we, an image. <laughs> yes. When we zoom back out to the bigger biblical story, what we find is the penalty is exile and death. Like the mm. penalty throughout the biblical story is exile and death. And so um, we look at Adam and Eve in the garden, right? The penalty for sin is exile. They're cast out of the garden. And it's death that uh, on the day you eat of it, you know, they're on a trajectory that lands in the grave, right? Yeah. And this is not only true of Israel's story or Adam and Eve's story. It's true of Israel throughout the Old Testament mm. that the consequence, the punishment for uh, Israel's sin as a whole in the kingdom is uh, they eventually are exiled. They're sent into exile in Babylon. And this is depicted as death. The famous Ezekiel Valley of Dry Bones, mm. uh, Ezekiel the prophet seen this Valley of Dry Bones. It's an image for the nation, the death of the nation in exile and under the power of Babylon, right? Yeah. Um, and so what we first have to do is to go in the biblical story, the penalty for sin is exile and death. Hmm. Now, as Jesus steps onto the scene, one of the things that Jesus is doing through his incarnation and through his life is he is reliving the human story. He's reliving Adam and Eve's story. He is reliving Israel's story. He's reliving our story successfully in all the areas that we've hmm. failed. I look at this more in the book, but uh, the early church talked about this as recapitulation. Big fancy yeah. theological term, but it basically means like uh, reheading. He's like the new, uh, he's recapitating, recapito captain. He's the new head of humanity, the new head of yeah. creation. Hmm. And he's becoming the new head or king or, you know, head of humanity by living the life that we were supposed to live uh, sinless, fully human, like like full humanity, not corrupted or degraded by sin. And he's reliving our story. And so the, um, we see this throughout the Gospels, this emphasis on Jesus is true Israel. He's living Israel's story, succeeding where they failed. He's hmm. leading, living Adam's story, succeeding where they failed. He's living our story, succeeding where we failed. And, um, and this ultimately, too, he lives out our story of bearing our uh, exile and our death taking it upon himself. So at the cross, when people want to say, oh, Jesus wasn't punished or he didn't do it, I just want to be like, well, did he die? You know, because like, <laughs> like yeah. in, in, yeah. within the context of the biblical story, death and exile, he, yeah. the, the gospels emphasize how he is cast out of the city, he is brought to the cross. And so he takes on himself the mm. the 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 suffering of the punishment that our sin mm. has brought into the world, which is exile and death. So in terms of the penalty, I think it's helpful to frame the reality is Jesus goes into exile. He's cast out and he's crucified. That is that is um, penalty. Uh, the next part is well, I don't know. First off, any yeah, no, I think I think it's really helpful. Um, even just the the recapitulation because that is that is something from the early church. I think Irenaeus right is kind of the the origin of that. But really, I, I mean to see Jesus reliving. Um, and ultimately, like, like what's going on there is that the son became what we are in order that we could become what he is. Mm. And, and that's this whole, he gives his life uh, for our life. And, yeah. and that's the beauty of yeah. the gospel. Just, yeah. you know, the caricature, the distortion, mm -hmm. but the beauty of the gospel is um, he became what we are in order yeah. that we could become what he is. Well, he became sin who knew no sins so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. Yes, the early church had a saying for this, uh, the unassumed is the unhealed. Hmm. What they meant was um, uh, that how Christ heals us is he assumes our condition to ourselves. Oh. So hmm. uh, you think of it like, you know, if Jesus only took on a soul but not a body, then he could heal our souls but not our hmm. body. If Jesus only took on soul and body but not our suffering, then he could heal our physical condition but not our suffering of it, hmm. you know? Hmm. Uh, if Jesus took on our body and our suffering but not our death, then his healing could only go so far. But because Jesus assumed the fullness of our condition, the full freighted force and frailty of our flesh, yeah. like our uh, soul and body and suffering and all the way into the grave, Jesus assumed the fullness of our condition, including the penalty that our sin bore upon himself in order to bring his divine presence yeah. in contact with the fullness of our corrupted humanity and to mm. heal and restore us and raise us from the grave. Dude, that is good. It's really good. Woo, this, that's good, man. This might bridge some of the gap between penalty and substitution, yes. but one of the highlights for me of the book was, so we talk about Jesus is the truer and better, and we can fill in a bunch of characters in the biblical story and a bunch of you know occupations, vocations in our lives. But I'd never heard somebody talk about Jesus being the truer and better Wall Street like <laughs> CEO. That's yeah. not one I would have uh, would have ran to. So uh, this was this was really shaping. Can you can you talk about that and even talk about Jesus being the captain, yes. the head of humanity? Could you could you fill in what that 
how that Great. applies to this. Great, yeah. So Jesus is a Wall Street CEO. Uh, so first off, the context for this is talking about then substitution. What is substitution? Yeah. So if I go to my favorite breakfast joint and I order bacon and they bring me out like a vegan substitute, uh, you know. That ain't going to fly. Lo- loved all the vegans out there, you know, but I'm like, that ain't what I ordered. We're, we're praying, we're praying not, for you. That's not the substitute <laughs> I wanted, right? So, so uh, substitution, a lot of the critique is going, is substitution fair? Like you think about a courtroom, and if the judge has a murder or a rapist in the stand, right, and they're like, uh, I'm going to punish this guy instead. You know, like, we would all look at that and go, dude, that's a travesty of justice. That yeah. You, you yeah. can't just substitute one person for another. Maybe if it's like, oh, I'll pay your parking ticket, or, you know, but we're talking about, like, real <laughs> crime. Like, like, talking like, about the death penalty. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Like, that doesn't, um, that doesn't help it. It doesn't help anyone. You know, it, it doesn't protect society from the, it's the, not justice. the murder. It doesn't do anything for the family of the ones who've lost loved ones. And you, it would be a distortion of justice. Hmm. Now, so that's kind of the critique. Now, uh, here's what I'd say is to properly understand what's been meant historically by the claim substitution. The context is Christ's corporate identification with us, right? Corporate identification. And I think we hear that word corporate today, and we tend to think of like Walmart and Starbucks and, you know, big corporate companies. Uh, but the root of the word, it comes from the word like corporal, meaning of the body. And so the sense is that mm. humanity is a social body, an interconnected social body uh, that sin has wreaked havoc in. And we are a, we have a corporate identity. Uh, you could think mm. of us as Humanity Inc., right? <laughs> and so part of what is happening in Jesus's uh incarnation and the life he's living is God is installing Jesus as the new head of humanity, Inc. Jesus mm. is like the new CEO, so to speak, yeah. right? The mm. new person in charge of humanity um, that God's installing. Now, when you think about sin, uh, and when you think about, say, like a, a corporate debt, right? Uh, it would be ridiculous. If you take the housing crisis back in 2008. We, yeah. man, it, we got hammered. Like our, we had just bought a home and, you know, mm. everything tanked. And if you remember those, you know, those who remember that time, um, man, the big question, like you had all these banks on the line. Bank of America, for example, they owed $17 billion in damages for these horrible loans that, you yeah. know, banks had been giving out and just the impact it had on the economy. Um, so let's say Bank of America had a corporate debt of $17 billion. Now, what would we, we have said as a society if they just fired the old CEO and installed a new CEO and said, hey, that was under the old CEO, so you can't hold us accountable <laughs> yeah. for that $17 million anymore. We got yeah. someone new in charge, right? Like, Sounds like a great deal. Yeah, yeah. Like, that would be ridiculous. Everyone would go, no, it's a corporate debt. It's not just yeah. a personal debt the CEO had. It's a corporate yeah. debt the company had. And if we acted that way, then every time, you know, BP wouldn't have to clean up their oil spill, they'd just fire the old CEO <laughs> yeah, and hire a totally. new one, and that'd be done, yeah. right? So... Uh, we recognize that there is such a thing as a, a corporate debt, and that's what's going on. Paul talks about, like, in Adam, humanity has sinned. There's this corporate debt that's brought death yep. in, into the world. And what God is doing in Christ is installing him as the new CEO. So even though Jesus is personally in- innocent, he is identifying corporately with the debt of the quote-unquote company that he's mm. come to take over, right? With Humanity, Inc., that he's yep. being installed as the new leader of. He is bearing our corporate debt, even though personally Innocent, and so one of the ways I think I put it is, um, you can think of it, it. It's not uh, so. One of the problems with the caricatures is that it's individualistic. It's yeah, kind of this yeah. one person for this one person. Where in the Bible, I think what we're seeing is it's not so much that um, Jesus is punished instead of humanity, as it is rather that humanity is being punished in Jesus. Hmm. Like He is bearing humanity's corporate debt punishment that sin has has brought by bearing our exile and death. Yeah. And that, that ties in with the recapitulation of what you were saying about exile and death, of him reliving. And now the substitute is, hey, Jesus, the CEO of Humanity, Inc., is innocent, but corporately we are in debt. And, um, and so, there, so therefore, it's not so much that Jesus is being punished instead of humanity, but humanity is being punished in Jesus. That's, that's really good. That's really good. That's yeah. a really, really helpful um, yeah. image to hold on to of the CEO. Jesus is the true and better CEO. Not not something, again, we think a lot about, but it's it's absolutely there. I think this even can lead into a, another caricature you you spell out, and we're, we're, we're well, right. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, maybe just to add on that, uh, it's true. You know, I, I think, too, people would say, well, why can't God just forgive the debt? You know, like, why can't he just, sure. like, let yeah. it go? Let bygones be bygones. You messed up. Let it be done. Um, but the reality is, I was just like, somebody always eats the cost. Yes. Right? Like, yes. Uh, I think I heard Keller use an example like this once. You know, but if your neighbor, this is my own version of it, right? But neighbor comes home. Wasted drunk, two in the morning, drives their car through your bushes, slams into your house, you know, and like, boom, like destroys the house. Uh, and you wake up the next, you know, you wake up the next morning and you come out and you're like, dude, somebody drove their car through my, it's my neighbor. And you go over to their neighbor and wake them up and they're all hung over. And you're like, dude, you destroyed my house, but I forgive you. I forgive the debt. Now, forgiving the person, it doesn't mean like the house magically like reappears and the bushes come back, whatever else, you know. But yeah. what you're forgiving means is like, I'm not going to hold you accountable for the cost. I'm going to eat the cost yeah. myself. Yeah. And similarly, use that housing crisis example again. Uh, one of the big questions was, should we forgive the banks, right? Yeah. Uh, and we did. Like there was a national plan to forgive bank forgiveness, debt forgiveness to the banks. Um, but what that meant was not that suddenly the economic disaster went away, it meant that yeah. the government or we were going to eat the cost of society ourselves. And there was yeah. outrage going, we don't want to eat the cost. Yeah, we yeah. feel like they should eat the cost. You know, so the reality is somebody always eats, somebody the, always cost. eats the cost. Like, yeah. You can't get away from that. That reality. It's built into the fabric and structure of creation, like sin and the destruction it brings, yeah. brings a cost. Somebody always eats the cost. And so when people say, well, why can't God just forgive the debt? I want to say, God is justly forgiving the debt mm. at the cross. What is happening at the cross yeah. is God is eating the cost yes. himself, that the Father through the Son in the Spirit are bearing the cost that our sin has unleashed in creation uh, in the flesh and blood of the incarnate Son of Man, Jesus, the new head of humanity, Inc., is mm. bearing the cost himself in order, part of the divine plan, to restore and heal mm. creation and make us whole. So good. And like, great. why would he, because he loves us. Yes. You yeah. know, and this, this overarching theme of the pursuing God, why would God do this? Yes. Why would he do it? Because he loves us. <laughs> and uh, I think he's the image there of going uh, decapitation, recapitation, right? So that language of capito, you asked earlier, can you get back into the new captain, the, the captain of creation? Uh, so when we talk about recapitulation here really quick, this early church yeah. understanding, Jesus is reliving our story. It comes from the words re and capito. So re is new, capito is head. Uh, it's the word we get our word captain from, like the captain of a ship, the head yeah. of a ship. So what is happening, Jesus is becoming the re capito. He's becoming the new head of humanity, the new captain of humanity, Inc. He is reheading humanity and creation as God's, uh, God's installed king, right? Now, what this means is, I think from one angle, you could say the cross is a decapitation, right? It is mm. us cutting off our head. <laughs> like it is us killing mm. the king, it is us killing God's rightful king. Uh, that he's, it, it's the mob murdering the mayor. You know, it's, it's weird. Oh, yeah. The crew throwing the captain overboard. Mm. Uh, it's Adamic humanity rejecting the savior. Right? Yeah. And yet from another angle, I believe you could say that the cross is a recapitation, right? Mm. Because it is in the cross that God, from God's angle, what God is doing, what we're doing is trying to cut off our own head, cut off the king, right? The right yeah. king. But what God is doing is actually in the cross and the death of Christ is most fully uniting Jesus as king mm. with humanity in our condition. He's mm. actually, you can almost say that he's sewing the head on, right? Like he's uh, uniting Christ with us in the fullness of our condition and divine wow. love in order that he can meet us in our alienation and darkness in the grave and hmm. raise us with him. And so the cross and the grave is actually the point from the divine angle where Christ is most fully united and bound with us in our condition, where the head is most fully um, joined to wow. the estate of his people as their new king hmm. in order that he could raise them up with him yeah. through the power of his resurrection. It's good. It's really good. I, when we talk about eating the cost— where my mind typically goes, and I think a lot of us goes, is Jesus eating the cost. He's the one getting hurt. He's the one getting tortured. He's the one who dies. But something you say in this, this other caricature you get is, we don't think about the father eating the cost. And we have this caricature of, you know, the father's cold, distant, unengaged at the cross. Or he's just, you know, punching, like you say, he's just repeatedly punching Jesus in the face. Versus the gospel, the father endures the greatest sacrifice of all, the death of his son at the cross. That's a, that's a significant paradigm shift. Yes. Mm. Yes, the, the cross, uh, the, the father, I think the character again, yeah, that God's cold, distant, unengaged versus going, rather the father endures the greatest sacrifice of all, the death yeah. of his son, you know? Um, and so one of the ways I talk about this is going, man, 
as a parent, most parents I know, like there's nothing worse than your child suffering, right? Absolutely. So we had years ago when our daughter was five, she had a uh, psychotic break. It's it's a long story, complicated story, um, but she'd had a, 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 a she'd had a it seemed like the flu or some kind of sickness, and it sparked the psychotic episode where she was hospitalized for ten days and then six months with specialists, um, but. screaming, thrashing, uh, like just glazed over looking her eye. It was like she was gone. It looked like demon possession. Like it was just, Hmm. and we, um, and the doctors at the time thought it was permanent. And Hmm. we thought we had lost our daughter. Hmm. Like uh, not uh, not in the sense of dead, but in the sense of her whole personality was gone. And and she was bouncing off the walls with just thrashing and like, like, yeah. So, and in the midst of this, I... I honestly can say I don't think I've been through a harder, worse time in my life than mm. enduring yeah. the suffering of my child. Like she uh, didn't recognize Holly and I. Like she wouldn't. Wow. Like she would thrash against us. You know, it was almost like the more intimate the relationship, the more she wow. just couldn't. Holly, the doctors wouldn't let Holly uh, see her or be in the room because of the yeah. response she would have. Is like the more intimate the relationship, the more it's triggered or sparked mm. something in her. And so, we went through. Um, six months and it was brutal and in that process i got to know other parents with children in the hospital i got to know other wow. parents uh with with children who and there is nothing worse and every parent to a t would say dude i would trade it myself in a heartbeat you know like totally. I, to, for me to be yeah. be be the person yeah. right um and it, so oh go ahead oh i was just gonna say it's that it's that popular saying in in society of parents should never have to uh bury their child and with that, we sit, we have a word, right, for if, you know, your spouse dies or if, you know, a, a, you know you're a widow or if, you know, you're a kid and your parent dies, you know, you might be like a, an orphan, but there's, we don't have a word mm. for if you're a parent and your kid dies. Yes. Yeah. yeah. We don't even have a word for it. It's yeah. so painful. I remember a, a couple I was friends with back home and they're an older couple and they, um, their son died in Iraq in the war. And, um, and the father, he talks about, uh, he wrote an article for the the paper uh, back home. And I remember him talking about how he just raged at God for like a year. He was so angry. And yeah. finally, he let it out on the back porch one night. Mm. He just, God, you don't know what it's like to have lost a son. And he stopped and caught himself in the words, you know, and yeah. and realized and heard the father speak to him. I do, and I'm with you. you know? mm. And like the reality of... The father knows what's hmm. like to endure. You know now. One of the reasons that I think that can get uh, missed is I think there's some misunderstanding around some historic doctrine around the father of the yeah. house, right? And so I talk about this in in the book, and um, and this is uh, related to the father and suffering, like the father's relationship to suffering. So one historic doctrine that I hold to, uh, a lot of people reject today, but I, I hold to and try and defend in the book, is what's called impassibility. Right? And it's a fancy word that basically means uh, that the Father or God, divinity, deity, even the Son in his eternal righteous Father, Son, and Spirit, uh, do not suffer passions. And uh, sometimes I think that's misunderstood where uh, people get the Im- image of, well, God doesn't suffer passions, so that means that he's cold, distant, unengaged. No, it's not what this historically meant. So let's talk a little bit about that, like yeah. what, what impossible is teaching about who, who God is. Now, uh, historically, the word passions were used a little differently than they're used today, right? So we tend to think of, like, I'm passionate about art or I'm passionate about changing the world or I'm passionate yeah. about justice. You know, like it's it's an active um, desire to accomplish good in the world. Yeah. Uh, now, that's a, that's a good thing. But historically, passions were distinguished from affections, right? Mm. So passions mm. were passive and they tended to be associated more with bad things, right? And it was where your circumstances impacted you, where you kind of lost yourself to your passion. So you can think of like uh, a dad, uh, kids come home, he wrecked the family car and the dad's like, what, what did you do? He kind of, you would say he loses himself in his passion, kind of his anger, his passion, Mm. anger, or somebody, um, yeah, you could say it was a crime of passion. You yeah. know, you found out yeah. like they had an affair and you lost, you know, people talk about you lost yourself. Like you became someone yeah. different because your passions overtook you. And yeah. so uh, the idea of language of passions historically, it was a sense of like you're being passively impacted by your circumstances hmm. such that you lose yourself and yeah. act out of character. And what it was saying was 
that never happens to God. Yeah. Now, ironically, yeah. it actually protects from the divine child abuse character, yeah. right? Yeah. going, yes. God, doesn't fly off the handle. Yeah, God doesn't fly off the handle. He doesn't lose himself. He doesn't become someone different. The world can't impact God such that God loses his character. Mm. Like God, mm. God is always life light and love. We cannot act upon God such as to distort or to change God's character and make yeah. him something other than life, light, and love, which means hmm. everything that God does, even in his judgment, even in his justice, he is always acting as life, light, and love, the fullness of who he is in himself uh, in expression against sin at times, but wow. God is always fully himself. Now, affections, though, were active. It was, um, uh, and the claim here would be like, God has great affection for the way he loves creation that he's made. Yeah. He loves humanity and God actively acts in alignment with his affections. God is love. <laughs> like God, hmm. uh, God, God actually, God loving, it's not something he adds onto his character. It's the fullest expression of the triune God who is a communion of love. And so what this has been saying historically is even at the cross, the cross is not God losing himself and acting differently. The cross is the expression of who God is, Father, Son, and Spirit, in them dealing with sin to restore the world. Hmm. And here's what I think this helps do is we see that the cross is multifaceted, oh. right? Like there's a theologian that I love um, in terms of the Father's relationship. There's a theologian I love, J. Todd Billings, and he's got this great book, Rejoicing and Lament. And he talks about impassibility there, and he talks about, and he, he's someone who suffers, he has terminal cancer, and he talks about wow. yeah. how that doctrine has been a comfort for him in the midst of this. Hmm. Um, but he, uh, he he talks about how it means that, here, this is a quote from him, um, God has no disordered affections that could make his loving being and action ebb and flow. God's affections and actions are utterly consistent with his identity as the covenant Lord. Thus the Lord who freely enters into he goes, kind of goes on about this, um, but he's never blindsided or manipulated by creatures. Instead, God loves in fullness, and here's the part, he has the appropriate relational affective responses to creation, to delight in the goodness of creation and obedience, to have compassion on the suffering and hear their cry, to grieve over the creation's self-destructive sin, and to be angry in response to evil, injustice, and wickedness. Hmm. Catch what he's saying there. Because God is love, because God is impassable, he doesn't fly off the handle, doesn't lose himself, but he acts appropriately in relation to the world. So, mm. uh, and Billings talks about this here as his delight in the things that are good about creation, his compassion on the suffering, his grief over sin's destruction, and his anger in response to evil and justice weakness. And I believe we see all of these at the cross, mm. right? That I believe at the cross, this is how I put it, at the cross, to borrow Billings' language, the Father has compassion on his suffering son because he is love, right? Uh, he has compassion on his incarnate son as he cries out um, in identification with us as our head. Uh, the father grieves over, he can borrow feelings, he grieves over creation's self-destruction hmm. that is born in the flesh of his son, right? He's grieving. The father is angry at the cross, like in response to our evil, our injustice, our wickedness. Uh, and the father delights in the cross from another angle as it displays the obedience of the son that's ordered towards the restoration mm. of creation's goodness. Part of the power of the cross is, I believe, the multifa multifaceted nature of God's relationship to it. It is the cross is an expression of God's both his uh, his compassion, mm. his anger, his grief, and his joy, his delight in in his son. That's all centered on Jesus Himself. Yeah, that's that's really good, and this impassibility. Um, I think the, I think the question that, that arises for a lot of people, one is, uh, a part of that, even in that Billings quote is anger, right? Mm -hmm. God's anger. And oftentimes you hear about the wrath of God yeah. mm. and that's a really scary word. What does that mean? It, it sounds yeah. like God is just this angry God, bloodthirsty God, vengeful God. But then we hear that God is love. And so does God's wrath contradict his love? Uh, how, yeah, I know that that's one of the caricatures that you you hit on in the book, but just I'm piggybacking off of the anger part. Yeah. Um, do you speak to that? Yeah, let's talk about wrath, yeah. Stephen, I'm curious first, you had some stuff, I think, in that section that had stood out to you. You wanted to yeah. speak up some of that? Yeah, I, want, I wonder if you could talk about, when we think about God's wrath, and I'll just read the character, wrath contradicts God's love as an inappropriate for his character, hmm. versus the gospel, wrath arises from God's love and deals honestly with our world. And you use this image, Josh, of fish on a dock. And there's this image mm. of fish that uh, 
jump out of like God's good world in the water, how they were meant to live, and they jump on the dock. And the image, or maybe the caricature uh, of, of God's wrath is he comes over with a stick and just starts beating the fish. You stupid fish, why would you get out of the water? What are you doing? <laughs> yeah, he starts you know, kicking them, stomping on them, and just like, I'm so mad at you, I'm going to beat the tar out of you. Versus the, the fish is suffering, you could say, in exile up, mm. on, up on the dock. It's not where he's supposed to be. Mm. And also, he will eventually die up on the dock. It's not where he's meant to live in the sense of, the, the wrath of God being poured out is the experience, kind of the, the old Augustine idea, Athanasius Augustine saying that the punishment of sin is sin, that the idea of being on the dock, flopping around, not experiencing the life we were always meant to live hmm. is a punishment. That is God's wrath being poured out. And uh, that, that was a—I don't know if I'm totally doing it justice, but that is that image of the fish on the dock— I think it's a helpful image when talking about God's wrath and mm. that we're that part of it. I know there's more to it that's that you dive into, Josh, but part of that idea of we experience God's wrath, kind of the quote of when you go against the grain of the universe, you get splinters. And yeah. the splinters in your hand mm. is God's wrath. Yeah. Um yeah. Yeah. So uh, that analogy I use, you know, it, it actually came out of, I kind of mentioned this there, it was somebody critiquing wrath, right? So wow. they were, to the kind of starting point was saying, they're saying, hey, if you think about like this fish jumps out of the water on the dock, uh, it's flopping around the dock. Josh, would you consider that a consequence or a punishment? Right, and they're going like, is it a natural consequence of the fish's actions that mm. it's uncomfortable flopping around, or is it a punishment? And of course, we would say, oh, it's it's a natural consequence, right? Like a punishment would be someone walking down the pier with a stick and beating the heck out of the fish, right? Um, but so they were using to say that similar. They're like, hey, sin, it's really just natural consequences. It's not actually punishment or wrath, like mm. that's an appropriate language. And my pushback was saying, um, well, yes, on a human level, if we're talking about or fish level, I guess. <laughs> but when we zoom out to God as creator, it's actually both end. Yes. You know, I'd suggest it's both a natural consequence and mm. a punishment. And here's what I mean. The creator has ordered creation such that the fish thrives in the water and uh, and suffers on the dock, right? And so as the fish is jumping out of the dock, because God's agency is different than ours, you could say on the one hand, the fish is suffering the natural consequences of its actions. You did this. You went against the grain of the universe, so you got splinters, right? Yeah. But from another end, you could say uh, the creator is uh, inflicting the due punishment inscribed yep. in the order of creation because yes. God is not just some dude on the dock like watching this all go down. God is the creator who is sovereignly upholding all mm. creation and yeah. uh, and what's been called his distributive justice that God distributes to each one uh, as appropriately as he holds us all together in his covenant relation to creation. So uh, one of the ways I heard this put, it was actually a Catholic theologian, um, oh my gosh, his name, Matthew uh, Levering. Matthew Levering, uh, really brilliant theologian. I've, I've loved some of, some of his stuff, but he was talking about this and he raised the question of this. He said, if you woke up tomorrow with a cow head, <laughs> like, like you woke up tomorrow, looked in the mirror, you had a cow head rather than a human, human head. Bummer. Would, <laughs> would that be just, right? Would that be just of God to give you a cow head rather than a human head? And uh, the point, the analogy was going, you, you say no, um, because uh, God could do that. He has the power to do that. But it would violate his distributive justice, mm. right? The idea that God upholds creation with appropriate relationships mm. that gives us a sense of reliability on one day, the next. And creation... Uh, we don't exist kind of deistically, like mm. just running on our own steam. Our lives are sovereignly upheld by by God, mm. and so what that means is um, that God's agency is different than ours, uh, and that's why God is able to be both. Uh, you know, like on the one hand, our rebellion. I think I think I like. Don Draper, I used to love watching Mad Men, right? You know, and I think Don Draper, like, on the one hand, like, dude, by the end of the show, like, all of his pursuit of his pride, his vanity, his issues with women, like, the way he treats the people closest to him, all that stuff. And on the end of the series, like, he's lonely, he's isolated, he's mm. depressed, he's, you know, and, and on the one hand, you could say, like, uh, you know, he's just flopping around on the dock, like, natural consequence of his own actions. He's a handsome fish, but he's flopping around on the dock all the same, right? You know, he's yeah. getting the consequences of what he's done. But on another hand, you could say he's receiving in himself the due punishment inscribed in the order of creation by the creator. 
Yeah. Uh, he's receiving the punishment for his actions by the God who is upholding him in that estate. The triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, is upholding him in in that estate. And the uh, biblically, you see this in a lot of places, but uh, one Romans one is kind of famous where it says God's wrath is being revealed against yeah. humanity. Mm. Um, and he goes on to these three gave overs. He gave them mm-hmm. over. He gave them over. He gave them over. And it ends with this laundry list of like twenty one sins yeah. that they. Disobey their yeah. parents, and they, you know, there's a whole list of things that we do. Uh, and the picture is one, but it doesn't say because you're doing these things, then God will have wrath down the road. At least in Romans 1, the context there is saying these things, God giving you over to these things you want, they are the expression yes. of God's wrath, wrath against you because yes. He is sustaining and upholding you in this corrupted <clears throat> state that you want yes. and you are pursuing and actively going after. It's like the worst thing that God can do is take his hands off of us and say, hey, you do you, right? Like that, that is like, because we will always sin and that's, that's what we're going to choose. And yet by his sovereign hands, like you say, upholding, um, you see that in Romans one, the wrath of God. Yep. This even ties back to last week's podcast talking about uh, the older brother Hmm. who is outside and the father's wrath would be this image of he just lets him stay out of the house. He's not coming out and punching him in the chin saying, you selfish jerk. Like, yeah. fine, you want it? I will leave you out there. Hmm. There's a sense of like that being God's wrath being poured out in that in that moment. Um, yeah. Uh, this, If I could read this, this is yeah, a please. quote from that levering guy on Aquinas. He's kind of expert on Aquinas' thought, the medieval theologian. But he says this, uh, the order of creation is such that when we rebel against this order, we disorder ourselves, losing our interior order and justice to ourselves. When humans turn away from this divine love and refuse our debt of justice, humans lack the justice we were created to have that is inscribed in the created order. Hmm. The resulting disorder is itself a punishment. Uh, And for Aquinas, he goes on to say, sin itself then is a punishment. Not the only punishment, but a punishment of sin. And I think that's interesting because one of the phrases I I push back on is when people talk about a natural consequence. Mm. It's just the question of what do we mean by natural? Because sometimes when we talk about nature today, I think we think of nature as um, a space that exists independently of God, right? Mm. Like God is out there somewhere, but there's sort of this natural order of things that just kind of exists on its own. And that's why we talk about a natural consequence as if God's out of the picture. Wow, yeah. (laughs) But the reality, broader biblical perspective is nature is upheld by the sovereign hands of its creator. Providence means creation is an ongoing, God is actively creating as yeah. we speak, you know, like yes. by upholding providentially creation itself. And so the Father through the Son and the Spirit is upholding creation in the estate it's in. And that means that when these things happen, um, yeah, it's it's uh, God's agency is at work hmm. in our day-to-day lives, in the fabric of our existence, even upholding us in our disordered estate that's arisen because of our own sin and rejection. Mm. Diving into this subject of wrath, I think it's might hear like, yeah, that sounds, I, I understand what you're saying, but it just sounds mean. Mm-hmm. I, just, I just, I don't understand. It feels too much. And there's a, a quote you have in here from a theologian, Miroslav uh, Wolf. Uh, I'm probably butchering that name. But uh, yes. he, he talks about, because in that caricature, your response in the gospel is that wrath arises from God's love and deals honestly with our world. Can you speak to that? Yes, totally. Uh, so the the quote is actually so Wolf. Um, he's a theologian, public intellectual, uh, and he's uh, he, he grew up in the former Yugoslavia that had been ripped apart by yeah. almost genocide, like just really yeah. brutal uh, civil war. And so he talks about he's reflecting on this, and he says, "I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? No, God is love, and God loves every person and every creature." That's exactly why God is wrathful against mm. them. So my last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination, and I could not imagine God not being angry. Mm. Or think of Rwanda, and he goes on uh, the, the horror of the genocide there. Um, how did God react to the carnage by doting on the perpetrators in a grandparently fashion? 
by refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain, here's the big key part of the quote, though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. Mm. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. Hmm. And I think that the reality, like the reason that God is angry at sin, we got into this in the last episode a bit, but God's angry at sin, not because it taints him or gets him dirty or he's worried about, you know, uh, God is angry at sin because it alienates us from himself, because yeah. it fractures and harms humanity, and because it destroys the good creation yeah. that he loves. Yeah. And it's because of God's love. Some have said, you know, the opposite of yep. love is not wrath, it's indifference. Yeah. Like the real opposite of love is just, I don't really care what you do or what happens to you or whatever, you know? Uh, and the beauty of the gospel is that we have a God who is not indifferent, but yep. who is dead set against our sin, like literally on the cross is dead set against our sin mm. and ultimately takes his own uh, triune wrath. You know, like God takes the divine uh, dead setness against sin upon himself in the cross in order to overcome it on our behalf in Christ. It's good. I think I yeah. just quote this, like, love hates that which harms the beloved. And love can't be indifferent towards that which would harm the beloved. Yeah, and I think even going back to one of the caricatures uh, around the cross, but it actually plays out here of some, some of the ways we view God. Is yeah. he this cold, distant, indifferent or is he involved? Is he yeah. near? Is he close? Does he care? Is he sovereignly upholding? Yes, all of those things. And because of that, he is love. And when he sees sin is wreaking havoc on his good world and on, on his image bearers in which he has made to flourish in the world and sin makes us less than human, it dehumanizes us, there is anger that makes God angry because he sees you know, we often talk about sin as a parasite, right? When he yep. sees this parasite in his good world, yes, it makes him angry, but it's always flowing out of his love, which once again, if we're framing this whole conversation of what is his mission in the biblical yeah. story? Well, he's not just mad about it. He's gonna do something about it because he loves and he's on this mission to redeem and restore because of his love. It's good, that's good. Speaking of the story in which, the cross finds itself embedded into a theme that runs through the biblical story is sacrifice. Hmm. And I think this subject is pertinent to what's going on. We think about uh, Jesus in, in many ways is inaugurated into his ministry by John saying, behold the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Hebrews really drives this imagery home. Can we talk about uh, sacrifice a little bit? I think about uh, Josh, your character is sacrifice is how you clean yourself up so God can stand to be with you. Versus the gospel says sacrifice is how God cleans you so you can stand to be with God. Mm, yes. That's good. That's great. So uh, sacrifice, uh, first off, a couple initial observations is, um, you know, sometimes I think we look back and think of sacrifice as it's barbaric, it's ancient, it's, it's this weird old practice. Uh, but one of the first things I think is helpful to recognize is everybody in the ancient world sacrificed, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. like we're the yeah. anomalies on the historic scene and it's helpful to try and get in the mindset of why. Mm. Um, now, first off, Israel had some commonalities with other nations and how they practiced sacrifice and some differences. Uh, commonalities had to do with, uh, there was this understanding throughout the ancient world that life is gift and mm. the appropriate response of gift is gratitude, right? Mm. And so um, it's not like they just... Uh, burned up the food and didn't do anything, right? Like they're, they're often at the center of these feasts, even national feasts where the priests yeah. were like um, the party hosts, right? So <laughs> people would bring yeah. their sacrifices. But you think of like the pastor, like people would feast on mm. the lamb. It was a bringing together. And um, and I, I remember being at a, um, I used to work up on the Navajo reservation for about six months. Huh. And uh, and they had a lot of sheep, and sometimes special occasions, you know, you would slaughter the sheep. But often the grandmother uh, there, before the sheep was slaughtered, would say a prayer of gratitude to the creator hmm. for the sheep, wow. the family I lived with. You know, before the sheep was slaughtered, uh, there was a prayer of gratitude for the to the creator, recognizing we are receiving life from this life that's been hmm. given. And the reality is that's still true for us today. I just think we often don't recognize it, right? Because well, we yeah. get our meat at Costco and it's styrofoam wrapped with saran wrap, whatever, <laughs> yeah, you know, like, yeah, like we get kind totally. of the pristine package. And so we're disconnected from the reality that 
we have life because life was given. Even if you're a vegetarian or whatever, you know, it's true of the stock of grain that was beheaded. And, you know, and so that you could <laughs> yeah. receive life from outside of yourselves, the wine from the grapes crushed, right? There's a reality built into the fabric of creation that mm. in order to sustain life, we must receive life from outside of ourselves, life mm. that is given. And there's something sacred to that reality, yeah. like the recognition of life is gift. When you look at a lot of Israel's sacrifices in Leviticus, uh, the first couple chapters that outline these, um, they're, most basically they're gifts that say thank you and mm. I'm sorry. <laughs> right? Like, like if you were to boil yeah. it down, there's the thank you gifts, like thank you God for life, and there's I'm sorry, version, mm. right? Um, and so built in the sacrificial system was a sense of going, it starts with God has given us life mm. and we receive that life as gift. And we still have sacrifice today in one sense. We just don't have the gratitude, right? Like we, we yeah, have a yeah. world that's kind of been disconnected from that reality. But now there's another layer in a way that Israel was different from the surrounding mm. nations. Uh, often the nations did use sacrifice to try and pursue and appease the gods, right? Like, hey, gods, if we we're going to give all this stuff so that you'll bless our crops, you know yeah. things, right? Yes. Uh, Israel worked in the other direction where their sacrifices were rather... Uh, uh, a response to what God had done for them. Yes. And so we see this in some of the foundation stories for the sacrificial system. Yeah. Uh, one big one is Genesis 15 and Abraham and uh, it has this, this vision where basically um, to sum it up, like God has him cut these animals in half and create a path or a trail yeah. that lay, lays them out. And this is because uh, in the ancient world, covenants were often, they called it cutting a covenant. You yeah. would cut a covenant, mm -hmm. meaning you cut the animals, and there's kind of the sense of like going, um, may it be done to me if I break the covenant, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, may I get cut in half and split open like these things if I break my word, and it's kind of a blood covenant, right? Now, the crazy thing is, though, the way these ceremonies would work is you'd cut the animals, you'd lay out the trail, and then the two people entering the covenant would walk the path together. Yeah. They would walk through the animals together. Uh, but what's unique in Abraham's covenant with God is Abraham falls asleep. He goes into a deep sleep. God puts him into like this deep sleep and he has this vision. And what he sees is the presence of God represented with this fiery torch going through the, the animals alone. Mm. Right? And what that's saying, this is the God who walks the trail alone, right? Yeah. And what God is saying is essentially, God, Abraham, I'm taking the full weight of this covenant upon myself. Mm. I am the God who may may I get split open yeah. if this yes. if this covenant gets broken uh, rather than you Abraham like God is bearing the responsibility for and the weight of the covenant yeah. upon Himself and it's recognized in the sacrifice. So later in the temple sacrifices, what they are doing is they're remembering and recognizing in part like the God who has provided the sacrifice and the God who has taken responsibility for this mm -hmm. covenant on His own and then who has invited them to feast at His wow. table. Another key image quickly is with Isaiah and Isaiah 6. And I love it's where he's in the holy presence of God. This is the famous holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty. Yep. Uh, and then Isaiah recognizes in the presence of God, woe is me for I'm a man who's unclean, uh, a man of unclean lips. Yeah. The language of uncleanness is the language of sacrificial language of like I'm impure. I'm not in a right state to go waltzing into God's presence. And an angel takes a coal from the altar, burning coal, uh, and the altar is where the sacrifice has just been made. So the image here is the ang angel takes the sacrifice just made and he goes and he, he he puts the coal on Isaiah's lips and it cleanses him and purifies him. Makes him pure. And what we see here is that Isaiah is not using sacrifice to clean himself up for God. God is using the sacrifice to clean up Isaiah, mm. right, to make him pure and whole and able to stand in his presence. And I think all this points forward to uh, the Eucharist like Christ's mm. sacrifice on the cross, that Christ is the God who walks the covenant alone. Like he yeah. walks the trail. Yeah. He takes, Christ is God taking responsibility for the covenant himself and bearing it and its weight and humanity of Christ, allowing himself to be ripped apart, in yeah. essence, you know, on our behalf. And every week when we come and we receive mm. the bread and the wine, the, the sign of Christ's sacrifice, giving himself for us, we're not using... The Eucharist to try and clean ourselves up for God. <laughs> We're receiving what He's done as He cleanses and feeds and nourishes and prepares us. He gives us the gift of Himself to make us whole. It's really good. So you could say yeah. that sacrifice, the Eucharist, is a is an embodied reality that that is a reminder, a symbol of the pursuing God. 
Yes. Like it shows that this is the God who pursues us. Hmm. Like yes. this is the God who is drawing near. This is the God who made a way. Yeah. This is uh, I've, I've, even externally processing this, that something I think we said before the podcast got going here is that sacrifice, if I'm understanding this right, is not a symbol of our commitment to God, mm-hmm. but it's a yeah. symbol of God's commitment to us. Yes, amen. Yeah, and even even with the covenant of, of Joshua, you just talked about with Abraham in, in Genesis, of the good news for for us in the midst of that is it's not on us to keep the covenant, but God is faithful. Even when we're not faithful, He is faithful to keep the covenant, and, and that's what we see now. We are we now are recipients of that in the new covenant and what, what you're talking about with the Eucharist of like, this is good news for us because God has been so faithful to us, the pursuing God, that even when we are wayward, when we're unfaithful, it, his covenant to us is not dependent on us. He, he's going to be faithful to his people. And like, that's the good news of, of the gospel and, and who God is, this pursuing God. Yes. Really yeah. One other piece uh, that I find really fascinating is you could ask the question, why don't we sacrifice today? Right? Like mm. If everyone throughout history, every civilization, every ancient peoples, like just around the world, if everybody sacrificed, why don't we today? Mm. And it may surprise you to know it's because of Jesus, actually, yeah. right? Like, mm. like the first civilization in the history of the world to stop sacrifice was the Roman Empire. Mm. And there, it was kind of a few centuries after Jesus because of kind of the conversion of the empire. And the logic and the reality was, was under the influence of the church, and the reality was we no longer need to offer the sacrifices because the ultimate sacrifice has already been given, mm. right? Yeah. And so Constantine, controversial figure, we don't need to go into all that right now, but uh, <laughs> but Constantine was the first to uh, remove sacrifice, right? And eventually over time, like it spread to other civilizations, peoples of the world. But the logic of it was not because sacrifice was bad, what yeah. we were thinking, mm. we should never been doing that, but rather because sacrifice had been fulfilled. Yeah. The logic for yeah. the church was going, it's not that sacrifice was bad. It's rather that the lamb has been slain. Yeah, the right? spotless like, lamb. The spotless lamb, like the perfect sacrifice. In the yeah. language of Hebrews, like the perfect sacrifice yep. has now been offered. And so sacrifice is no longer necessary. And yeah. honestly, I, I'd say there are many people today who would kind of talk about sacrifice as if it was a mistake. You know, like, mm. oh, it was a mistake. God kind of put up with it, accommodated himself to it, but then he kind of brought us out of it, you know? But rather the logic historically has been, no, sacrifice was not just rooted in Girard, if those are familiar with like violence, medical violence, like I think there's realities there that that are it can be insightful and helpful, but there's a bigger context of going, sacrifice is rooted in the recognition that life is gift. It's received from the outside yeah. given, and it's prophetically foreshadowed the whole time, the coming of Jesus, hmm. the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate gift given where we now ultimately receive life from outside ourselves, not just like food that sustains us, but in Christ given that redeems us. Yeah. He gives us his very flesh and blood to be united to him, grafted to him and built back up by him. Hmm. Life is gift received from Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice. It's good. And before we totally land the plane here, is any, any final thoughts on this? Anything that you want to make sure we don't miss? Any other angles? I know Josh even said... Uh, this, this, the atonement, there's so many different angles. It's like looking at a diamond with all its multifaceted, you know, beauty. Um, anything we want to make sure we don't miss before we, before we land. I have two things I'd kind of throw in. Crawford, yeah, go ahead. Uh, one is um, how do penal substitution and Christus Victor yeah. are kind of two of the bigger ones, right? And I think it's actually helpful to recognize how they relate. I think there's actually a strong relationship to each other. Hmm. Uh, Jeremy Treat really draws this out in his excellent book, The Crucified King uh, on the Atonement. Um, And the way he puts it that I firmly agree with is penal substitution is the means and Christus Victor is the end, right? Mm. Uh, And so they're not just like two different sides of the diamond, right? They're actually related to one another in that it's because Jesus bears the penalty for sin. He bears our exile and death as our corporate head that— victory over sin, Satan, and death, the principalities and powers, all those things is accomplished. It's because he's the Passover lamb was slain mm. that the Pharaoh and Egypt yeah. of evil and sin and death, their power is disarmed and destroyed, and Christ's victory is established over that which oppresses us. Um, the, the, the forces of evil that oppress us are overcome by him bearing mm. the heart of the problem, the root of sin that we have unleashed in the world. He takes it upon himself in order to be victorious over it. The cross is victory over the principalities and powers yeah. because it disarms them by taking upon himself the penalty of our sin 
and, hmm. and, it's, and the root, dealing with the root of sin itself. So I think that's helpful to go, they're related to one another. And so one of my concerns theologically long-term is if you cut out the one, downstream you actually lose the other. Hmm. You know? And that's so that's, good. that's one thought. The other thing I'd say is um, we talked about wrath earlier, and sometimes I think people misunderstand it as like, so sometimes God does passive wrath, sometimes God does active wrath. People misunderstand that language. Yeah. And what it's really historically saying is, no, it's two sides of the same coin. God's, like, uh, it, it's it's always simultaneously, like, from one angle, it's the fish flopping on the dock, natural consequence. From another angle, uh, we see throughout this depiction of, um, I go in the book into how the Bible describes the flood hmm. and how God describes the exodus from Egypt and how God how the Bible describes these events. And it uses both end language to describe them as from one angle, God giving us over to what we want and the unraveling of creation, the unraveling of our humanity and our distance from him. And in another angle, Scripture is very comfortable saying, God's saying, I did this to you. <laughs> like, yeah, like yeah, I am yeah. inflicting the consequences yeah. of uh, the curses of the law. I'm doing the stuff like Scripture very comfortably weaves back and forth between both yeah. different ones as two sides of the same coin of God's agency and God's action. And I think that points to, there's an underlying issue, I think, that we often have a faulty understanding of God's agency. We mm. see him as just another Joe on the scene doing his stuff versus the creator upholding and sovereignly at work in the midst of, of creation. The final thing I'd say, and this is maybe the third thing I said two earlier, three, <laughs> I'll land with this. But it's a bonus one here. This is maybe my favorite, right? This is, I, I talk about the book at the heart of it, but um, when it comes to the Trinity and the cross, that we have misunderstood at times, I think where the danger is, is that at times in recent history, we've made the tension between the Father and the Son, yeah. so two divine persons, where historically how the church has understood it is really the tension is between Christ's divinity and his humanity. Hmm. It's located in the person of Christ rather hmm. than between the persons of the Trinity. And the way I think you could think about this is from Christ, the, the angle of Christ's divinity, Jesus is God pursuing us into our distance, like to meet us in the depths hmm. of our condition, wow. right? Hmm. Um, and yet from the angle of Christ's humanity, Jesus is uh, God bearing our distance from the presence of the Father, right? And so... From the angle of his divinity, Jesus is God bearing the presence of the Father into our distance to meet hmm. us in the distant land of the grave. Yet from the angle of his humanity, Jesus is bearing our distance from the presence of the Father upon himself to hmm. overcome that distance wow. self, right? So uh, that was really, really good. the heart of the cross. <laughs> Wind him up and let him go. It's <laughs> <laughs> really good. The heart of the cross, it's both. It's like Jesus yeah. bearing our presence from the Father upon himself. But then from another angle, it's Jesus bearing the presence of the Father within himself into our distance to meet us hmm. in that place. And that's why I believe the cross is ultimately where we find union with God. It's really good. That's really good. Well, I want to just land the plane, uh, part hmm. two of this, with a quote that you said actually leads us into next week's as we'll really talk about what this means for us as a community. So, Josh, you say this. Hope you still agree with it. <laughs> uh, you say, through Jesus' sacrifice— God washes us clean. Jesus is like Windex. He cleans the gunk off the window of our hearts so we can see the Father clearly again. He's also like a hazmat suit. He protects us from the radioactive gunk that would put us in a death state. And finally, Jesus is like a shower. His holiness and righteousness washes us clean. Jesus fills in the holes we've punctured in our spacesuits so we can bask again in the life-giving radiance of God and reflect that presence to the world. And so next we're gonna talk about how do we do that as a community? To, to bask in that and radiate it to the world. So see you next week for that one. Thanks for listening to this episode of the All of Life podcast. To get more information on Redemption Church Tempe, you can download the Redemption Tempe app or you can send an email to tempe at redemptionaz.com.